Hey everybody, it's Drags again. Welcome back to Jungle Roar, a Cincy football podcast, all things Cincinnati Bengals, and then some, as you'll find out today. Today I welcome one of my favorite personalities on the Cincinnati sports scene and someone who is well-connected throughout this great city, the one and only Mo Egger. Mo, how you doing? I want to know who else is on that list of favorite personalities. Uh, you can probably guess a couple of them. Oh, I want to know what kind of company I'm keeping. M- Marty would be one of them. Well, well, okay, that's we just we're done. We're finished. The, the fact that you would even put me and him in the same grouping would be uh, would be uh, a he, he's out on your behalf. Yeah, he's he's out golfing somewhere in Oregon. I guess he's back now. Sure, but uh, yes. <laughs> um, Mo, as uh, most of you know, is an afternoon host on ESPN fifteen thirty. He's also heard on the big one seven hundred WLW and ESPN Radio contributor to the Athletic. Uh, I love your work on the Athletic, Mo. And um, as anybody who follows Mo Egger on Instagram knows, he is a huge fan of Skyline Chili. Yes. Uh, and yes, you are. And you are all things bobbleheads, as anybody um, <laughs> who is uh, seeing this um, can see behind you. You have a, an incredible display. I have a display behind me, but it's not uh, anywhere close to what you have and one more thing before we get into uh, Bengals football Mo um Crosley is your daughter correct yes yes just turned four in May congratulations to Crosley is she going to be cool with the fact that she was named after a baseball park I hope so she's asked it's funny she she, uh we were talking about names I forget what what the context was and she asked what, what she was named after and I started to go into this whole elaborate story of how she's actually named after Crosley Field, but also um, when we came up with the name, mm-hmm. we were sitting in our living room and we were kicking around names and we couldn't agree on anything. And my wife said, boy, I, I like something that kind of reflects Cincinnati. And I look over and I, because I'm a colossal dork, I collect, or I, I started to collect, I've, I've sort of slowed down my collection, Crosley Radios. And we had one in our living room. We still do. But I, in, the, in our old house, we had one in our living room. And I just looked over at it and said, how about Crosley? Thinking there's no way in hell my wife would go for it. And she mm-hmm. did. So uh, I kind of tried to tell her the story. And, you know, her being foragy, she just kind of looked at me and said, why? And there's no way to answer that. So I, I hope she's okay with it. Um uh, in my, in my family, I'm a Maurice, which is, yeah, that's an awful name. My sister is a Louise, which nobody, nobody born after 1936 should be named, uh, Louise. And my brother is Dennis and I really haven't met many Dennis's. So on the pantheon of Egger family names, Crosley might be the best. That's so, now see, I've offended Dennis's and Louise's and, and, Maurice's, my- and I haven't meant to do that, but Crosley is a better name than all of those. Uh, as you know, my best friend is a Louise and That's uh, right. well, we probably just made her mad, which is, great. yeah. And I'm going to have to call her up, apologize <laughs> and say, well, Mo really didn't mean that he was just uh, trying to, uh, I just uh, thought she was b- born before 36. So, <laughs> oh, that won't offend her at all. <laughs> all right. Let's get on to the stripes. Um, I, I'm hoping that my optimism for the 2021 Bengals is not misplaced. I actually think this roster, if they stay healthy uh, in one piece and Joe Burrow stays upright, I think this team is is going to either surprise or even shock some people, um, partly because I think the roster is much improved, but also because I think the start of the uh, season, the schedule is very, very favorable. 
Yeah, I I agree with you on on that point. In terms of do they shock people? I think they're compelling for a thousand different reasons, uh, not the least of which is obviously Joe Burrow playing a full season and uh, them potentially being a lead at wide receiver. And I I do think they're going to be improved on the offensive line. I think this offense is really going to have explosiveness potential. I think they're going to have the potential to, to beat teams in a number of different ways. I think they're going to score a lot of points, but you know, I, I think all that can be true and you could still wonder how many wins is that going to translate to? Cause I, I simply, I, I have no idea what to expect from them defensively. And it's, it's right. kind of been the area of the team that, I mean, we've, we've kind of joked about it on the air the last couple of days. Uh, oh yeah. Remember the defense because we haven't talked about it for Correct. you know obvious reasons. It's all been about Joe Burrow and his health and then offensive line and Jamar chase. And the reality is they've spent two seasons, two off seasons, drastically overhauling that side of the ball saying goodbye to mainstays. Uh, Geno Atkins and Carlos Dunlap and, and Carl Lawson, William Jackson, the third saying goodbye to really good players and replacing them with guys that might be okay. Um, the good news is it, it's, it's not like they have to have a top five defense. You know, they don't have to be the 2015 team, which was uh, second in the NFL in points per game allowed by one tenth of a point that's not needed. But if, if, if if the ceiling's not that high for this defense, and I don't think it is, well then the floor is probably pretty low. And and you could you could tell me, Mo, uh, th- this is going to be one of the worst defenses in the NFL. That seems plausible. You could also convince me uh, because of the I think the improvements they've made on the interior of the defensive line. I think to a degree, I I, I agree with the the theory that they've they've bolstered the, the the overall quality of the secondary, even if they said goodbye. Uh, to William Jackson the third, it's just sort of a, a matter of quantity over quality, and that's going to translate into maybe more turnovers, better pass coverage on the back end. You, you could sell me on that, but we don't know. We don't know if Lou Anarumo's good as a defensive coordinator. We don't know how the pass rush impl- improves when they said goodbye to Carl Lawson. There's still, I think, for a lot of people, major questions about what they do at linebacker. They're going to probably start three cornerbacks. Um, neither of whom played a down for the Bengals last year, one of whom didn't play a down for anybody last year in Trey Waynes. Right. The questions right now outweigh the answers. If those answers we get are answers we like, then yeah, I, I think this could be a team that wins more than it loses. If the answers are answers we don't like, then I struggle uh, to think that this team can shock people and they're going to leave a lot of games there for the taking that they lose you know, maybe where Joe Burrow does his job and the defense simply doesn't do its. So what I think we overlook so many times is complimentary football and something we didn't take into account, uh, you know, last year is they bottom third, third down conversions offensively and defensively. And that spells death, not only for the offense, not to put up points, but when you, expo- it's like, you know, what the Reds exposing their bullpen when you don't uh, get good starting pitching, right? Mm-hmm. Well, when the offense doesn't stay on the field, doesn't get, uh, can extend drives on third down, you're, ex- you're exposing your defense. And I think when I look at that defense last year, that's what I think they really got burned is they wore down. Uh, they really wore down in, in Zach's first year, but they wore down last year as well toward the end of games. They get exposed and people are looking for reasons why this team can't close out. I talked about this with Dan Horde last week is 
uh, when you can't close out games at the end, it's usually because your defense is tired. And and mm-hmm. I think that the offense has to do a better job of converting third downs and extending drives. And a big part of that's not only Joe Burrow, a huge part of that is Joe Mixon running the ball effectively behind an offensive line that's got to be better. Yeah, you know, it's you talk about something else that we really haven't spent much time on. In a normal offseason, I think we would have obsessed over Joe Mixon's health, right? Because right. he got injured uh, week, week five. Uh, early Indy. in the year, yep. yeah, in Indy, and 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 before then, it's not like he had played very well, you know. So we barely spent any time on him. We probably talked more about Giovanni Bernard leaving than Joe Mixon coming back from a from a season-ending injury. And you you talk about somebody that I feel like the onus should be squarely on. A year ago at this time, we were debating the merits of giving him a long-term contract extension. We were wondering, is there going to be some sort of holdout? Is there going to be some sort of camp distraction? Uh, do you really pay a running back in this day and age? Do you pay a running back in Joe Mixon who, you know, let's face it, there's there's a lot that he does, but there's a lot that he doesn't do because they have Giovanni Bernard. Well, what have they done? They paid him, and then they said goodbye to Gio, and they basically told Joe Mixon, you're, you're going to be the guy. Uh, you're going to be in charge of of being, you know, better at picking up uh, the blitz. Uh, we're going to put you in, play you three downs. Uh, a lot of the Giovanni Bernard responsibilities are going to be on you. That's why we paid you. And so, you know, um, it, it, they didn't get. And last year was was you know technically not the first year of the new contract, but uh, you know this year, yeah, you, you're. You're looking at you're looking at somebody. Was I right about that? They drafted him in 17, 17, 18. Uh, hold on a minute. Uh, so last year would have been year five, right? So it would have been. Yeah, uh, 17. He was second round pick in 2017. Right. So 17, right. 18, 19. Uh, yeah. Last year was the fourth year. So uh, he was still public on his. High schools in Kentucky did not uh, afford me a chance to be good at math. Yeah, there you um, go. <laughs> no, so, but, but I mean, you know, this is where he has to start delivering on the return on investment there. And, you know, let's, let's face it. Week two, what did the Bengals do last season? They had Joe Burrow throw it 61 times. You can't do that. Right. You have to do that if you can't run the ball effectively. And by the way, you know, when the Bengals drafted Joe Mixon, we envisioned this uh, versatile uh, multi-use running back that they were going to be able to use in the passing game. And, and whether it's been Bill Lazor or uh, Zach Taylor and and, uh, and Brian Callahan, oh, they yeah, never right. really have completely tapped into that. So I, I, you certainly like to see more of that. But yeah, I, I mean, in a normal year, Joe Mixon would be the guy that we spend all, all offseason talking about. Um and and now here we are that the money kicks in. He's a, a central part of this team. They're not as deep at running back, at least with familiar names. And they can't have Joe uh, Joe Burrow back there heaving it 45 times. So no. And yeah. well, here the, to me, if you get Joe Burrow taking uh, Joe uh, Mixon taking over games, that is going to not only save the defense, but it's also going to allow Joe Burrow to be infinitely more effective back in the pocket, and you can run play action. One thing, and I wanted to bring this up uh, at the luncheon on uh, Monday, the media luncheon, was how important will Joe Mixon be to protecting Joe Burrow? Everybody talks about the offensive line, but if you can run the ball – Defenses can't pin their ears back. I mean, you're throwing it 61 times, like you said, in that uh, Thursday night game in week two. Defenses are pretty much getting the uh, green light early in the season that the Bengals aren't committed to running the ball. 
Yeah. And, you know, look, I mean, it's one thing to talk about Joe Mixon's uh, injury last year. The reality is before he got injured, he he frankly wasn't wasn't very effective. And even if you go back to 2019 and and a lot of this is going to come back to the offensive line, his productivity from 2018 to 2019 fell off by nearly a yard per carry. Um, That was, I think, pretty startling for a guy. It's not like Joe Mixon's 30. I think that was his age 23 season. Uh, he was a player who led the AFC in rushing the year before, and we we expected huge things from him in 2019, and the team as a whole was awful. They won just two games, but it's been a couple of years since he has even come close to being a, a an upper echelon back in the NFL. I feel like he has a ton to prove, and if he's able to prove that, the benefits for this team go beyond simply – gaining more yards on the ground or Joe Mixon uh, delivering return uh, on, on the Bengals investment in him. There's a clear benefit to, to what it does to protect Joe Burrow. There's a clear benefit to what it does to maybe uh, allow Joe Burrow to, to, to thrive to his uh, fullest capability. But it is, it is interesting how for a guy who a year ago at this time, I mean, we were debating, well, do you sign Joe Mixon or or do you sign AJ Green? And and I I remember kind of raising my hand, going, I don't know if I would really do either because AJ's old, and right. I don't love signing running backs long term. But they clearly made a decision. Joe Mixon's a central part of this team. Um, I, I certainly understood why. Uh, I, I think if you're if you're going to tell a coach, hey, build the culture, uh, he deserves a chance to coach the kind of players that he feels like can fit that. I think for Zach Taylor, Joe Mixon clearly does. But at the end of the day, it's about productivity and usage. And I think the productivity obviously has to increase. And I think the usage has to increase as well. And that only happens uh, if he's healthy and uh, if, if the offensive line uh, affords him and the offense opportunities to, uh, to thrive. So I'm going to ask you this about uh, Zach Taylor. When you look at him this year, what are you looking for in terms of him showing you that he's improved? Something he does on the field or something he says to us in the media? In what way can Zach Taylor show you he's grown up as an NFL head coach? I am probably less qualified to be able to tell you that I have seen what I'm looking for than anybody but by the end of the season, the obvious answer is they got to win more games, right? right. And, and I'll be honest with you. I, I think the, the, the one thing that gives me a degree of encouragement about him is watching this team over the first two years. Um, I've never felt like their effort waned. Now, you might say, well, that's that's kind of implied. That's inherent. I mean, you've, you've been around this league. You've, you've covered it. You know when yeah. a team has quit on its coach. I never felt like that happened. Even last year, uh, when there were stories about, well, the, the locker room is falling apart. Uh, I thought it was interesting that the players spoke to Zach's defense. And and I'm not ever really sure that any of that was a a direct indictment on Zach. I think a lot of that was the byproduct of players who had been here before Zach being unhappy. And, and I, I, you know, look, I, I thought, I thought to a degree that was kind of unfair. Uh, I think a lot of that is just sort of a natural byproduct of a lot of losing and the Bengals lost a lot last season. I also think it's very encouraging that, in a year where his rookie quarterback didn't play in the preseason and they had this weird offseason where they're learning virtually, Joe Burrow showed up week one and looked the part. Now, is a lot of that on Joe? Yeah, sure. He's a number one overall pick. But you can't tell me the coaching doesn't play a, a role in that. Zach Taylor's obviously very hands-on with Joe Burrow. He's the play caller. Uh, was Joe perfect week one? No. Uh, but but I, I thought the fact that they got a rookie quarterback ready week one what reflected favorably on on Zach. But what I'm looking for this year for for a guy 
whose calling card is obviously offense and who is not just intimately involved with assembling the game plan, but he's calling the plays by the end of the season. I want to feel like Zach Taylor gives this team some sort of advantage. advantage right. Mike Tomlin gives the Steelers, I believe a motivational advantage. Absolutely. I don't think he's a very good game manager. He's pretty hands off when it comes to calling defenses, things like that. But I always feel like Mike Tomlin's got his team ready to play. You covered Bill Belichick for years. Right. The 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 uh, advantages are 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 multiple. They're all over the place. With Andy Reid, you feel like you know what this guy gives us a schematic advantage. This guy's a great play caller. Uh, this guy's a great designer of game plans. I want to feel like in some way, the Bengals have an advantage because of Zach Taylor. And my guess is that that is most likely to be a schematic advantage. Hey, this guy with his quarterback and a good group of weapons and an improved offensive line. Here's what the marriage between Zach Taylor and his quarterback can accomplish. And most people are going to give that credit to Joe Burrow, and, and I probably will too. But I'd like to walk away from this season not just seeing a significant increase in wins, but I'd like to be able to say, here's where Zach Taylor gives them an edge. Because I feel like the, the, the teams that win or that are, are most competitive every single year, there's some sort of edge. I felt like after year one, Brian Flores in Miami gives the Miami Dolphins some sort of edge. A guy, you know, you're, you're motivational. Well, a lot like a lot like Mike Tomlin. Yeah, motivational. I, I want to feel like there's there's some sort of advantage that the Bengals have because of Zach Taylor. Uh, it, it, and to me, that's it's the central question of the entire year, right? Like we're, we're still going to be all in on Joe Burrow at the end of this season. Are we all in on the coach? Most importantly is Mike Brown all in on the coach. And I think the answer for all of us is going to be yes. If by the end of the season, you can point to Zach and go, he gives the Bengals an edge over their opponent most weeks because he does fill in the blank. I want him to fill that blank in. Well, and, and I asked this on, on Monday to both Mike Brown and Zach Taylor and even, and Duke Tobin also, um, when you're building a roster and when you're in the AFC North, you're looking at the Browns, who many people feel could supplant the Chiefs as the uh, AFC favorite to get to the Super Bowl. And I don't think that's hyperbole at all. I mean, they've really um, overhauled their uh, roster, especially on defense. Then you have the Ravens, who are always going to be good um, with Ozzie Newsom and, and obviously uh, John Harbaugh at the helm. And, and you have the Steelers, who every year you, you want to write them off and write Ben off. They seem to come out of the woodwork and, and at least get off to a good start and they are there at the end. So how do the Bengals compete in that kind of situation? I mean, how, how do they you know convince Mike Brown that, look, we – we may not get to double digits, but there's still hope for us going forward to compete in this division. Uh, win some of those games head to head against division opponents, right? I mean, you got to be more competitive against Baltimore. They played them twice. The the last game, you know, was week 17 season was over, but when they played them up there, that was, that was embarrassing and yeah. it was dangerous for Joe Burrow. They, they looked, th that is, that is maybe the, the, the only time, uh, over Zach's first 32 games where I really wondered, okay. And, and the reason is, is simply this. <laughs> they talk all week long about, oh, we're ready for the blitz. Blitz is coming. Oh, we know it. And then they show up on Sunday and it looked like they had no concept of how to stop a blitz or, or even that the Baltimore Ravens were going to do that. And they were, the, you know, at the time, the most blitz heavy team in the NFL. And I remember watching that going, you know, God, Zach, you, you talked a lot about, Hey, we got to be ready for the blitz. Uh, yes. uh, did you practice that? Um, I, I just, I, I think it starts, I think it starts with that. Um, 
I, I think to to beat those teams head to head, to be more competitive with those teams head to head. I mean, you know, let's let's face it, they're 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 never really going to take significant leaps forward toward the postseason until they're more competitive in this division. Uh, number one, those are measuring stick type teams. Right. Uh, all three of them made the postseason last year. N- number two, just just do the math. <laughs> you, you 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 lose. You start losing uh, more often than not in your division, and and you face an uphill battle in trying to get more wins and losses. So. I, I think it I think it's I think it starts uh with that. Um and 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 then there's there's sort of a, a trickle down from there. I, I think you can make the argument the Bengals uh at least by the end of the year, and maybe even now, I, I don't know, have the best quarterback in the division. Uh that might be a leap for some, but I, I don't think it's that huge of a stretch. Do they have the best coach? can't say that right now. Kevin Stefanski was awesome last year. Yeah. Harbaugh and, and Tomlin are both going to Canton. Uh, organizationally, you know, the Steelers, they're never awful, man. They're the St. Louis Cardinals. When they're down, they go eight and eight, you know? Yeah. Uh, and when the, when the Ravens it's a great dip, analogy. They, I love that analogy. Yeah. I mean, look, Mike Tomlin's never fared worse than eight and eight. I mean, and you think of a team that has just had holdouts and turmoil and controversy and uh, how they handled Le'Veon Bell tells you all you need to know about Mike Tomlin. Yeah, I mean, you know, people here don't like him, but I, I just watch him and I watch that team and I go, well, they're always a tough out. Uh, even when they're bad, they they seem to be up for, for playing the Bengals. So uh, I, I think they, at some point, if you want to be taken seriously, you got to beat the teams in your division. You know, I, I go back to the last couple of times the Bengals were good. Um, you know, in 2005, as long ago as it was, they went to Heinz Field and won. Yep. Uh, they they took care of business against uh, Baltimore. Cleveland was obviously a, a different story. 2009, they swept the AFC North. Uh, something like that is is probably not realistic. But I mean, that's th- that's when things that's when things changed. When they started to, especially because specifically against Pittsburgh and Baltimore, not only do they lose, they lose the physical battle. Yes, you know they they, and they get manhandled. They get manhandled in games. I mean, th- there was there was a game. This is obviously pre-Zach. I think 2018, maybe. Uh, not even an exceptionally good Pittsburgh team. And they just gave the ball to D'Angelo Williams. And it was like watching a, a game out of 1982. And they just beat him up. Yep. And it was gain three yards, gain four yards, gain three. And, and it was just, uh, you know, I mean, the 2013 Steelers aren't very good. Bengals going to the postseason. Bengals going to Heinz Field. The Steelers just beat them up. They've always, those teams have always been been able to impose their will physically which is why you, you the, the game the Bengals played last year week 15 when Von Bell uh blasted Juju Smith-Schuster as a fan yes that was cathartic but you clung you know as a Bengals fan you're always clinging to these little morsels that you think are going to provide some sort of uh, sustained hope you clung to that and thought okay maybe that's maybe that's the turning point in this series where instead of Pittsburgh being the aggressor from a physical standpoint, the Bengals can at least match it. And, and I know that sounds Neanderthalic and I know that's not very football's uh, a violent game. It's a physical game mode. You have right. to exert your superiority physically, or you have no chance, especially yeah. in, in a league like the NFL. Well, and then it, it, specifically those games against Pittsburgh, it always feels like they bring a level of intensity. They bring a level of physicality, regardless of how much talent they have, that the Bengals rarely match. And in week 15 last year, they did. And Pittsburgh had a lot to play for. They Say did. what you will about Vontez Perfect. Say what you will about how Marvin built his roster uh, in the 2000s and the early 2010s. But part of the 
part of their mentality was we cannot get bullied. And sometimes those teams went over the edge, right? I mean, they went over the line. There's no question about that. And perfect is the number one example of going over the line. But when they showed up, they knew that the the team on the other side, especially if it were the Steelers, Browns, or Ravens, these Bengals are going to fight us. They're going to be street fighters. And, you know, the last couple of years, that street fighting mentality has not been there. And, you know, the Bengals have to find out, find a way with a team that is built around uh, an aerial offense. How are they going to be physical? And to me, that starts in the trenches on both sides. You've got to be able to run the ball, pound people, punish people running the ball, uh, not all the time, but occasionally. And you've got defensively, you have to push the pocket back into the passer and you have to find a way. Uh, even if you are going after a guy like Lamar Jackson, who can extend the pocket and, and run around back there, you have to find a way to punish Lamar Jackson eventually. Yeah. Um, and there, you know, there's two different types of of quarterbacks at this stage, at least at this stage in in Ben's career. You know, <laughs> I remember um, last year in in the run up to the draft, uh, as somebody, I, I certainly understand the evolution of of pro defenses and and how linebackers are deployed and 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 sort of what we're looking for has changed uh, significantly. But that's been a position the Bengals have historically not valued. And I remember often last year leading up to the draft going, uh, should we watch the tape again of, of Lamar Jackson undressing uh, Nick Vigil and, and all these, you know, crappy middle of the field tacklers that, that, you know, couldn't, couldn't tackle anybody in space. You got to be able to do that. And uh, you know, you, you brought up what is maybe the central question to this team's uh, defensive hopes this year. And that's putting pressure on opposing quarterbacks because the the middle. Yeah. Well, yes. The math, the math is weird, right? They, uh, they just said goodbye to Carl Lawson, who was their best pass rusher last year. Um, and and yet the pass rush is supposed to be better. Now, I get what they did on the edge. Trey Hendrickson had a, a good year last year with New Orleans, and maybe he is an ascending player. And they, they certainly addressed edge rusher in the draft. And I fully subscribe to the theory that they, they hung on to Geno Atkins too long. And, you know, I think they're going to be better in the interior, but – I mean, there, there to me is the biggest question, maybe about this entire team. Uh, the pass rush was often absent last year, and that's despite Carl Lawson being pretty productive. Uh, is it absent this year? And if the answer is no, well, then this defense takes a major step forward. If the answer is yes, yeah, I mean, that could be rough. So, uh, but but what what they've done is 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 really interesting because again, we don't have a good pass. It's like a team. Well, we don't hit many homers. And our, our biggest slugger just left in free agency, but we're going to hit more home runs. Uh, it's not the best apples to apples comparison, but I watched Carl Lawson it's different, last year. Be, Mo, just to jump in there, football is much more complimentary, as you know. Yes, and and sure. you rely on other people uh, around you to do their yeah. job. In baseball, it's really one on one. It's picture against sure. batter, and I mean that's why right. I think but, that I mean, analogy is. But, but mathematically, it's you know I often watched Carl Lawson last year and said this guy is irreplaceable, and. Well, they're trying to replace him. Now, Trey Hendrickson again was productive last year. We can, you know, we can dive into the the context of his uh, of his sack total and all that. But d- does the pass rush improve with I think a beefed up interior and different guys on the edge? I hope the answer is yes. I think the answer is going to be yes because I do think they're going to be so much better on the inside. But it is one of the most uh, interesting questions I think about this team this year. 
I love the Sam Hubbard extension. I mean, I mm-hmm. look, maybe that was a no brainer, right? Um, but what he's shown in his first couple of years with the Bengals, um, to me, that's a no brainer. You've got to have a guy like that, a leader. He is clearly a leader uh, in the locker room for, on the defense. And I think uh, to extend him four years, 40 million bucks, that was a no brainer. I think extending Jesse Bates is maybe not as much of a no brainer, but pretty close. And yeah. you've got to be strong up the middle, uh, even though obviously Hubbard's an edge, but you've, you've, especially in your secondary, you have to be strong over the middle. You have to have a guy who can read the defense, call the plays. And I think he can do that at an exceptional level. Yeah. He's, he's, he's right now. I mean, uh, Joe Burrow will, will change this conversation. Jesse Bates is the best player in this team. He's clearly the best player in the defense. And uh, you know, what a, what a draft pick. Um, you, when you have stars in their prime, you got to figure out a way to keep them. And the Sam Hubbard thing was perfect because did they overpay? Not by any stretch. Uh, I, I saw oh. the average annual value will make him like the 27th highest paid defensive end of the NFL. Seems to me like that's about where he is. Uh, it, it still feels like he has a lot of upside. He's great against the run. It was a value signing. The Bengals have gotten really, really good at that value signings. Um, is, is he ever going to be your best edge guy? God, I hope not. But but can he kind of fit in a very good group of defensive linemen? Absolutely. Yeah, but you've seen guys like that in the NFL. Their motors are his motor is so high, and I think it really accounts for or uh, compensates for some of the pure pass rushing skills that he may not have to over overpower the guy in front of him. And Lou Anarumo was making that point on Monday: is you've got to be able to somehow some way beat the guy in front of you and when you watch film of sam hubbard he does that more often than uh-huh. not yeah no uh, very good draft pick uh you know fun that he's a local guy and all right. that and, and 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 i think a guy that still has a lot of upside um especially if the talent around him improves and you know let's face it to to a large degree when when he's when he's been on the field he's kind of been out there on an island and so you know now with hopefully again on the inside I think they're going to be better with uh, Ogan Joby and DJ Reader playing a a full season uh, w- with with the position group being bolstered this offseason hopefully that brings out the best in Sam but again I, I could not agree more very good signing and kind of the good solid signing that say what you want about this franchise the Bengals have typically been involved in they do not overpay and they certainly did not with Sam. I totally agree with that. And I think the Bengals are capable of double digit wins. Uh, I don't think uh, it's going to be necessarily 13. I I wrote a couple of weeks ago (laughs) that they're going to go 13 and four, and that's the best case uh, scenario. I think it's more realistic that they shoot for 10 or 11. And if you get 11 and go 11 and six, right, uh, that to me is going to be right on the fringe of the playoffs. And that's what I think the realistic ceiling for the 2021 Bengals is. It's, you know, it's funny. <laughs> I think it's going to be fun this year to sort of wrap our brains around, okay, is 11 and six a playoff team? Cause with the added game, but no, right. I, I think that's about the ceiling. I, I think that's, you know, ceiling is always best case and best case is never most likely, but um, you know, I, I, I think they're about an eight win team, maybe nine win team. Um, they're going to score points. They're going to be explosive. I do believe their offensive line is going to be better. I think Jonah Williams has a chance to be, one of the breakout, you know, players in this league. They need yeah. him to be. I mean, there's well, his the, name the worst came way. up Monday also. I mean, he absolutely yeah. when Mike Brown is mentioning Jonah Williams, there's obviously a thought throughout the entire organization that he's ready to burst out and become a dominant, you know, 
and, and and a guy that from from the jump they've had just an, an incredible amount of uh luck. of confidence and yeah terrible luck but i mean you know again two years ago uh they draft him they they don't trade up to take devin bush they thankfully pass on taking dwayne haskins and right instantly they install him as the starting left tackle this wasn't one of those deals where it's like well we're gonna we're gonna work him in at any position at, at, at all five positions and well if, no, he's the starting left tackle it didn't work out because he got hurt during otas threw him right back there last year throwing him right back there this year they have an extraordinary amount of confidence in him but He's got to start. He's got to stay healthy, first of all. And then he's got to start playing like the 11th overall pick. And they feel like that he can. I mean, th- th- I think there are a few players uh, on the roster that it feels like they have as much confidence in as, as Jonah Williams. So uh, this is the year where it has to start happening. And, and you know, God, think of, of the financial upside for him if it does. And then think of the upside for this team if it does. You have been around Cincinnati long enough to know that the image of the franchise has not always been great. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the public perception has been, <laughs> I, 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 I may have, I may have contributed to that. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. And, and, and understandably so on, on numerous occasions. Yeah. My point here is I think the Bengals, believe it or not, have come around on that and are finally acknowledging that through, I want to get your read on uh, rule of the jungle, the brainchild of Elizabeth Blackburn, the granddaughter of Mike, the daughter of Katie, um, why what she's trying to do in terms of the image of the franchise, at least reaching out to the fans is so important. I think it's a big deal. Other cynics may say, we'll believe it when we see it. We'll believe a team that is committed to winning when the team actually uh, wins close games at the end and does things to really entertain the fans at Paul Brown stadium, like win. But I think it's a big deal. Um. Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of different things there. I, this is a, a results-oriented business. All the other stuff is window dressing if you don't win. We understand that. Everybody understands they that. Understand Bengals, that. They understand that. At the same time, I, I, I do think there is a a level of, um, to a degree, self-awareness that they've shown. And, yes. and to me, they've one of the biggest complaints that I think a lot of people have had about the Bengals is either how tone-deaf they've been or how out of touch they've been. And, and I, I remember my first experience with this came when I was uh, 17 years old. The Bengals beat the uh, Philadelphia Eagles on Christmas Eve. Uh, to I finish, remember the game. Yes. They uh, seven James and nine. Joseph, uh, well, no, they finished. Uh, this is 94. Yeah. So they, they finished three and 13. It's Christmas okay. Eve. Right. James Joseph fumbles a kickoff. We recover. Doug Pelfrey trots out onto the field, kicks a field goal. Bengals win. There might have been a, about 7,000 of us there. It was cold. It was Christmas Eve. The team was terrible. It was the first year of, of Jeff Blake. And we get in the car, uh, my uncle and I, and we're listening on the radio and, and somebody says, uh, yeah, after the game, uh, the Bengals had a PR staffer handing out a press release indicating that the ticket prices were going to go up next year. Now, if there's ever a time to not do that, the day of the last game on Christmas Eve, when you're rounding out a three and 13 season, ain't it. And I remember as a kid in high school going, why, why would that happen? And that to me, that's always just kind of set the tone for, as I have followed this franchise, how at times out of touch, they've been out of touch with their public um, seemingly incapable of caring about the public. And and I, I, I could cite uh, so many different examples, but right. I mean, anybody who's, 
familiar with Cincinnati and grew up here, like both of us did and are, have been around it, um, are very, very uh, acutely aware yeah. of their yeah. image problem. So, so then, you know, fast forward here, uh, what they've done this off season in particular with the, the ring of honor, which is painfully overdue. Let's just call yes. it what it is. This should have been done. They know that many, many years ago, but, but it, but it at least was an acknowledgement that we hear you. We hear you. We, we, we know this is something you as fans want. And are there some fans who don't care about that? Sure. But, but here's what I've noticed from, from the standpoint of talking about this team every day. And, and the Reds have enjoyed this for years uh, in the middle of the off season with the Bengals coming off uh, a four win year uh, piggybacked on top of a two win year. Uh, instead of just constantly complaining about that, we were debating who should be in the ring of honor. How should it be executed? Uh, which Bengals players have been snubbed by the pro football hall of fame, uh, bringing up uh, fun memories of some of the guys that, that have been uh, under consideration. There is that. First of all, that's that's fun, and sports is you know kind of supposed to be fun. It, it also makes people feel good about the franchise. It makes people feel good about their their relationship with the franchise. Is that going to translate into season ticket sales? I don't know. Is it going to translate into wins? No. But 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 there is something about making people feel good about what you're doing and making people feel like they're connected to you, like they hear you, like you have a a tiny, tiny role in, in what the franchise is doing. The Reds have been great at this for years, and it feels like the Bengals finally, finally have grasped that concept. Is it all going to evaporate if the Bengals fall flat on their faces on the field this year? Yes, but I also feel like fans at the end of the day, they, they want most fans, many fans at least, they want to do more than just sit at home and watch their team. They want a relationship with their team. And I've often felt like the relationship that, that Bengals fans have with the team, it's been way too one-sided. And I don't feel that way as much anymore. They still have some work to do, but but it's it's gotten so much better. And, and if you're going to criticize them for what they haven't done, you at least have to acknowledge what they have. And, and it's been impossible to not acknowledge the things they've done uh, here recently. Two bits of insight uh, here that I want to bring up. Asked, I asked Mike Brown about the significance of the Ring of Honor on Monday and about acknowledging the franchise's history. His answer to me almost like took me aback. He's like, we're not about recognizing the history of the franchise. We just want to honor some of the play. And, and he also said, we're not about recognizing the, the franchise or my father. It's about the players who played here. Well, Obviously, ironically, one of the first four inductees <laughs> is his father, but but that told me, vol, you know, spoke volumes uh, about how it is Mike Brown has always viewed history. He's more about, I think, how is the team doing now? And it's not always looking back on, on what the team has accomplished. The second thing that I want to bring up is he said it in a little bit tongue in cheek, okay, Mo, but... He said, I have a granddaughter in Elizabeth Blackburn who's not afraid to, afraid of me and, and not afraid to go <laughs> into my office and bring up an idea and explain why it's a good idea. I wouldn't doubt that Elizabeth Blackburn went into uh, Mike Brown's office and said, you know, I really do think the time is now. And I talked to Elizabeth after the luncheon and she said, look, it's just something that we're trying to instill a faith with the the fan base and, and tell them, reach out to them and say, we are engaged with you. Yeah. And, and I, I think it's important. I, I think uh, it, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, 
and and I I've I've had a chance to talk with Elizabeth, and I, I found her very engaging and very smart. Very. And uh, I I love I, I love that the Bengals now have like a front office face that's new and younger and yep. seemingly in touch. It terrifies me that she follows me on Twitter. Um, <laughs> but the uh, it, it wouldn't surprise me at all. If, if you talk to people behind the scenes at Paul Brown Stadium, not, not necessarily Mike or Troy or Katie, but who have been made maybe a little uncomfortable by Elizabeth. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's Absolutely. a good thing for this franchise. It's, it's, it's good when somebody comes in and shakes things up and, and makes people just, uh, uncomfortable and, and puts them in, in positions that they're not used to being in. So I, I, I think, that's, I, I think that's, that's really, really good. In, in terms of how Mike, you know, Mike uh, about five years ago, uh, gave a quote, and I, I don't recall who it was to. It might have been at the same setting uh, that you were involved in yesterday, where he said, "You know, we don't we don't trade on nostalgia," and that to me was very emblematic of just how he grew up and the era that yep. he grew up in. But the shame of that to me is uh, he sat down with with Dan with Dan Hort for his podcast, and Dan got Mike to tell stories of everybody who was on the Ring of Honor ballot, and it was phenomenal. Yeah. And it wasn't, I played a, a very tiny snippet of it on the air. And I said, this isn't going to come off good on the radio because Mike is a deliberate speaker and he's not the most effervescent guy, but, but ignore all that. Listen to the stories and listen to the reverence that he had for so many of those guys. And so I, I remember listening to that thinking, man, this is the guy who, who doesn't want to trade on nostalgia and doesn't want to dwell on the past. And yet this guy uh, can speak in, in reverential tones about some of these players with, with just instant memory of what some of these guys did. And that sort of contrast was interesting to me. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad that we're doing this now. And I'm glad Dan, at least to, to the degree that he could, was able to tap into that because if there's no ring of honor, Dan doesn't do that. Mike doesn't do that. And and we, as fans and listeners don't get to benefit from it. So I, I, I thought that was, was really, really good, but the reality is they they've, they've been a franchise that has often been loath to celebrate individual achievement. They've been a franchise that has often been loath to you know, dwell on its, on its past. And, and I I'm glad that that's shifting nostalgia makes people feel good. Uh, people remembering their favorite players from when they were kids makes people feel good. People yes, remembering being in the stadium for a certain moment or watching a certain moment with a certain group of people, people that makes people feel good. And I think there's great value in making people feel good, especially folks that, that, you know, you, that you want to be your customers in, in some way, shape or form. So, and, and I'll wrap up the Bengal portion of this just by saying, you know, when Mike Brown was speaking to us at the end of the luncheon yesterday, I'm like, you know what, Mike, uh, I was saying to myself, uh, Trags, you should just listen to this man because He's the last connection, direct connection to his old man, to Paul Brown. And I grew up with very reverential, reverential uh, memories of Paul Brown uh, as a little kid watching the Bengals in the 70s. And it just it hit me that, you know, he, he's taken a lot of arrows over the years, but it's just something that you should appreciate. And I think, you know, he's come around and thinking that as well in terms of the history and what it means to not only him, but the fans of the franchise. I want to get your thoughts on uh, the UC Bearcats. <laughs> the next six year, five to six years, as Justin Williams <laughs> wrote, is going to be fairly important <laughs> to yeah. the Cincinnati Bearcats. Where are they going to wind up, Mo? Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, That's I a loaded any, question. I know. Yeah. But. I mean, I, I think anybody who, who speaks w with, with any amount of confidence in, 
when it comes to this question is, is lying. I mean, I don't think anybody knows definitively. I, I had on somebody uh, by the name of, of Matt Brown, who covers basically the off field aspects of college sports. And uh, he showed up on my radar last year because he was the, he was a guy writing about, well, you know, here's how the football season could unfold during a pandemic. When we had all these questions about, well, are we going to play? How do you play football, socially distance, all this stuff. And, and I, so I found his work and he came on the air with me and he was great. And so he's written a lot about a lot of things that have uh, less to do with what's happening on the field, like name and likeness legislation and all that. But now with UC, so I, I got him on and he, he wrote about, well, you know, here's some things happening with conference uh, realignment. And I said, just, okay, most likely scenario in your mind is, and he said, uh, some combination of schools from the big 12 and some combination from schools in the AAC. Uh, I, I don't know what that means. I don't know if that in itself is a quote unquote power five league. I, I don't know. Here's what I can tell you. Um, in 2013, the ACC admitted Louisville and not Cincinnati. And and I, I remember that talking with the, the athletic director at the time with Babcock on the air, and you could hear the disappointment and resignation in his voice. And I, I also got the sense that it wasn't just disappointment and resignation with the fact that they didn't get invited. It's we weren't ready for this. We weren't ready for this from a facility standpoint. We weren't ready for this from a, 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 a an economic standpoint. We weren't, we aren't in a very good position to be an attractive option for a school looking to expand. Uh, I think in 2016, um, they were in a better spot. Uh, and that's when the big 12 met, they were going to expand. Then they didn't. But in 2016, the one thing that kind of loomed over all of this was the football program was, was kind of a mess. I mean, Tommy Tuberville left it in, in not shambles, but pretty damn close. Now, uh, here we are. The, the football stadium and, and the facilities there are done and fantastic. The, the basketball arena is finished. The alumni base is engaged. The season ticket base is engaged. And the football program is a jewel. Yep. Uh, and you know, I mean, we're, we're dealing with something that we're not used to here. That's a, that's a head coach in his fifth season at UC. You kidding me? Uh, who really seems like a very good bet to stay long-term barring maybe a tiny handful of jobs opening up. That is an asset that UC has not had whenever this has been brought up. Certainly didn't have it in 2013, really didn't have it in 2016. Has it now on top of, you know, some other structural things in the athletic department that I think the school has going for it. So I remember in, in both in 2013 and 2016 saying, look, you, you can't control whether someone invites you. All you can control is, you know, is your shop in order. I think UC shop is in order. At the same time, it's, you know, here we tend to be very sort of uh, short-sighted, myopic, whatever the term is. And we think, oh, they're just going to pick UC. Well, I guarantee in Houston, they're having the same conversation about Houston and Memphis. I know they're talking about Memphis and or in Florida, they're talking about UCF. All these other schools are doing what they can to position themselves. But the, the asset that Cincinnati has going for it right now is, is the, 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 the shoulders of the football program are right now carrying the school. Is that going to matter as much as we would like? Uh, can that be sustained? How much pressure is there going to be on Luke to have the kind of season that everybody thinks they can have this year? All very good questions. But I do feel like the school is as is, is, is well positioned for this next 
wave of conference realignment in whatever form it takes than it's ever been. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, five years ago, I had, I had people emailing me every single day telling me the Big 12 was a done deal, and it obviously wasn't. Right. So who knows? Who knows? So, but I think the school has done a pretty good job of positioning itself. Well, the other improvement I think the school has made uh, without question, correct me if I'm wrong, is I think the administration, the executive administration of the university is much more behind the athletic department than they were, let's say, like in 2016, 2013. Because the biggest criticism, as you well know, Mo, is that the coaches that come through the University of Cincinnati, it's a stepping stone, has always mm -hmm. been for decades a stepping stone. And it seems like that has, like with the Bengals, that has gradually changed where the administration um, understands the significance of the athletic department. No? Uh, yes. It, it, look, I mean, when, when Mike Bone hired Luke Fickle, he, uh, and I thought appropriately so leaned into the whole stepping stone thing because, you know, they, they, they brought in Tommy Tuberville <laughs> who in between rounds of golf would occasionally show up to practice. And I think there was this acknowledgement that, okay, here's what works here. You get a guy who's climbing the ladder. You don't get a guy who's coming down. Let's find somebody climbing the ladder. Luke Fickle, much like Brian Kelly and Butch Jones and Mark D'Antonio was climbing the right. ladder. Now, Along with that, you, you got a guy whose values, I think, are a little bit different. You, you got a guy who's you know, got a huge family, six kids. He's an Ohio guy. He's maybe more likely to stay here than others. But more than anything, there's been a direct shift. And, and I just think within the athletic department, finally, the realization. Um, and I say this as somebody who you see Bearcat basketball is my favorite sports entity. Yes. But um, everything has to be on the shoulders of football. It just it does right, wrong, or indifferent. And so every resource is going to football. Every resource is, is going to football. You know, e even what they were going to do with John Brandon, the, the, the now uh, removed basketball coach. Uh, well, are we going to be able to do this financially? Because if, if we can't, that's going to take away from football. What's that going to do to Luke Fickle? They've got to do everything they can to keep him. They've got to do everything they can to, to boost this football program and make it as high profile and as good and as prominent as possible. And there were folks when Brian Kelly was here who kind of said the same thing. Look, you got your coach. The program has arrived. It matters. People care. It's the crown jewel of the school. And you still had some folks and I get it who are like, well, you know, actually, it's still a basketball school, right? Bob Huggins, Final Four, Oscar, National Championships. I come on, that's 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 the history. That's that's where the tradition lies, and and it certainly does. But everything that was going to be happening, you know, subsequent to Brian Kelly's uh, success at UC, was going to happen because of football. Football was going to drive the bus, and I think it took a long time for people at UC to completely realize that. I think right now there's there's a uniform realization wherever we're going. Everything else is going to, everything else is going to come along as long as football can get us there. And the good news is I think football can get them there. I do too. And I just think it's pretty exciting to watch um, Luke Fickle try to get this team to a playoff position in 2021. I think that if you told people that three, even three years ago, Mo, they would have rolled mm -hmm. their eyes and just said, no way, it's not going to happen. That's a pipe dream. And I just think what they've been able to transform with uh, at UC uh, with regard to their football team is pretty unbelievable, actually. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, <laughs> I pick on Tommy Tuberville a lot, but, but I remember his 
uh, his last signing day press conference was almost funereal. You know, they had, they had uh, signed 20 players. One of them was from Cincinnati. And, and if I believe if I, if my memory serves me correct, he was a preferred walk-on and he basically stood up there and kind of admitted, well, we, we can't get kids to come here. We, we, we're not, we can't recruit kids that have power five potential. We just, when we local guys, they don't want to come here. We, we I, you know, what do you want me to do? And, and I, I remember like watching that going, uh, we need a new coach. Yeah. I, I, this, yes. this can't be, this can't be the most high profile athletic department figure telling everybody, Oh, well, we, you know, we, we can't win here, which is effectively what he was doing. Um, and the results certainly toward the end spoke for themselves. I am very, very infrequently influenced or swayed by a press conference, but I remember, uh, Luke Fickle's introductory press conference going, okay, this guy's not screwing around. Uh, this, this dude, this dude means business. This guy's not messing around. And in a very short amount of time, the transformation, you know, his first year, they only, they only won four games. Yeah. But the transformation was remarkable. Just following recruiting, uh, seeing the kids they were getting. And within one year, they had won 10 games. I mean, that, that team in 2018 surprised everybody. Uh, and the, the, the remarkable thing to me, and this is why I think they're such a unique team that they've had for a school. You talked about being a stepping stone. I mean, think about what they've enjoyed the, the first four years of Luke fickle. They had the same coach, offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, and special teams coordinator. That's remarkable. And now coming into this year, you have the same coach, uh, you have the same offensive coordinator and you have the same quarterback who's been there for more than 30 wins. It's a remarkable amount of continuity and continuity with people who have already had success. And that that's, that's something that UC football has never enjoyed. Uh, and so I think it really could manifest itself in a, in a special season, but the mere fact that we're talking about UC football knocking on the door of the college football playoff. The fact that even if we knew they weren't going to get in, we all watched that show last year, that Sunday when they, you know, they announced who the four teams are and they had a reporter at Nippert stadium. I mean, whoever would have imagined that. So that was cool. And the really cool part is it, it feels like uh, the fun's not going to end anytime soon. I don't owe you one skyline uh, meal. I owe you about 10. Oh, sold for doing this. I I really do. It's Can we have them all in one week? Because that'll that'll make me meet my quota. <laughs> um, you might get some help from my daughters, who are uh, both now going to be in the area, as you know, one a senior at Miami, and the other going to be a freshman at UD. You knew that, all right? right? Yeah, Emma's no, going, she's to... going to UD. Yes, oh, she is. Boy. Oh wow! Uh, <laughs> I want to ask what that runs you, but but I'm I'm not. Uh, what is she studying? Uh, she is going to be psychology and potentially pre-law. I'm uh, trying so, to see whether or not um, a real she has, major. She's gonna. Yeah. She's not going to go up there and screw around like me and study radio and television. She's going to actually study something that can help her in, later in life. Yeah, and her and um, the um, career path of her dad had something to do with that as well. Yeah, like well, it. you know, I mean, you know, we, we all draw upon our parents' mistakes. One day, we my kids certainly will do. Well. And, well, that's awesome. I'm I'm glad uh, there's another flyer uh, in in uh, in the midst. That's that's awesome. I hope she yeah. enjoys it. It's a, it's a great place. It's a great school. I I, uh, I loved my time there. It's been yeah. many many years, but I love my time there. Yeah. So uh, it's going to be a great fall. Great fall of football. And uh, Mo, really, thanks so much for uh, spending uh, an hour of your very busy week with me here on the Jungle Roar. Anytime, anytime. You know how to get a hold of me. 
want to thank everybody for listening to this episode of the Jungle Roar podcast. Thank our terrific guest, Mo Egger. You can, of course, follow him on Twitter. You should be doing that already. All one word, Mo Egger, E-G-G-E-R. Listen to him daily on ESPN 1530, and he's also on 700 WLW and ESPN Radio. He also contributes to The Athletic. Again, everybody, thanks for listening.